Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. If you guys would, go ahead and open your Bible to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11. This morning, we're continuing our series titled The Ultimate Gift Giver. And what we've been looking at is God is the ultimate gift giver who gives the ultimate gift, which is his son. And we've looked at the gifts that God has given. So we've looked at the gift of hope. We've looked at the gift of family. We've looked at the gift of healing. And today we're going to look at the gift of grace. We get a great picture of what grace looks like in practice through this parable that Jesus tells. That's what we're going to be at today. Luke chapter 15 in the story that's titled the parable of the prodigal son, which I'm going to call it the tale of two sons or in a sense, the tale of the prodigal father, because what it looks like from all accounts is that it's the father that's gone rogue in this, which we'll see as we dive into it. So we're going to look at grace, the gift of grace. And what we're going to look at ultimately, if you come to our Christmas Eve's Eve service is that grace takes on a face. It's not just some something out there floating around in the ether, but it's actually a person named Jesus Christ. So God gives his ultimate gift in Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at the gift that God gives, and it's the gift of grace. So a main point today, I want you to walk away, away with is this grace the gift that keeps on giving, okay? Grace is the gift that keeps on giving. We're going to read this passage as a whole right now, read through it, and then we're going to do a little work, and then we're going to get right back into it. So with that, let's read. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. This is the parable that Jesus is telling. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one would give him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that your word is truth. 
And we thank you for this story that is a picture of your grace that runs throughout your Bible from beginning to end. We thank you for your word that tells the story from the creation of mankind, an undeserved gift, to you reconciling mankind to yourself, another undeserved gift, and, and, and you ultimately reconciling mankind out of, out of sin once and for all in your return, Jesus. And we praise you for this. All of this is, is grace, a gift that we do not deserve. Father, humble our hearts today to hear what you have for us. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. Make us receptive to your spirit. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us, encourage us. Father, do this through your word. Do this through the uplifting of Christ and through the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite stories is when I was about 16, 17 years old, I was skipping school and I was skipping school with two of my friends and my friends commonly fought over who was going to ride shotgun, right? And so we did the, we did the Rochambeau thing and my one buddy, his name was Brian. He, he got to ride up front. So we are riding through town and I have an 86 Toyota 4Runner. That's what I drive. So I have Brian sitting up front and in the back seat, I have my buddy named Jordan. And so we're riding through town and I can see Brian's mom, because we're at a red light, she's pulling up in a car next to us, okay? We're skipping school, and uh, I'm like, Brian, 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 your mom's pulling up. But no one ever believes me, because I lie a lot. And so he's like, I'm not buying it. And then I was like, I'm telling you, man, with everything, like your mom is pulling up. So he throws his seat back and just lays it on back, okay? So his mom is sitting next to me at the stoplight. And there I am, and I'm like, I'm not looking over. And I'm sitting there, and it looks like I'm driving by myself, <laughs> with Jordan as my prisoner in the back seat. Like, you can't even see the seat, it's ridiculous. And uh, so I look over at her and she's like, tell me to get up. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, I'm like, okay. And I'm not even looking completely. I'm like, hey man, your mom wants you to get up. And so he slowly, it was one of my favorite moments, he slowly raises his seat up as he looks over at his mom and she's like, pull over. And so we pull over and she's like, get out of the car, you're coming with me and we're taking you to your father's office. And so. That's what happened. Jordan, this whole time, was beaming because he's like, I get shotgun. So he was so excited. He did not care what happened to Jordan. So he moves in the front seat and whatnot. This kid's mom, uh, so I'll let you know, he, he also later was in my wedding. Uh, Mormon family, pretty strict Mormon family, okay? So his mom tells him, and he tells me later, he's like, hey, man, just so you know, it's, my mom doesn't really want me hanging out with you anymore. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, she thinks you're a bad influence on me. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> fair. But I was like, does your mom know about all the other Mormon friends you hang out and what you guys do? Because like the other Mormon kids, I'm not kidding. We're like chopping up pills and railing them and snorting himself like that. The only difference is my sin was very apparent in the community of Roseburg where I lived. Like, like it was very apparent to people. Theirs was not because they went to their seminary before school started every morning and they had the the facade of an image and what it looked like. So their sin, though both of our hearts were dead and lost, theirs looked very pretty to the world. And today what we're actually looking at is that, is you can have a heart that is just completely dead, but you can have all the image out there and for people to look at and behold the image and whatnot, but you can still be dead. And we're going to see that in the story. Or you can just be rebellious and your heart can be dead. The tricky thing is, is oftentimes we think somehow the misconception is the person in the pulpit or the pastors are the people that have their act together. When in reality, we're preaching on grace. The person who should understand the grace the most in your churches are their elders and pastors. 
The, the, the people who should understand they are saved by nothing other than grace and in desperate need of it are your elders and pastors. The people who should display a life modeling, this is not a message just for you guys, but it's a message for us, are your elders and pastors. There's no such thing as Paul Tripp says as a grace graduate. There's no one that, that, that's ever moved on from. In fact, if you see Paul, the apostle's progression in his life, he goes from saying, I'm a wretched man to saying, I'm the chief of sinners. And so we understand this, that grace, if it's going to be amazing, is going to have to come from a heart that understands just what you've been saved from, but continually what Christ is saving you from because it's the gift that keeps on giving. So we need to do a little work first before we jump in here. So first, what is grace and what do I mean by grace whenever I say grace? Grace is this. Grace is a gift that you can't attach anything to, anything that you do. If you attach anything to it at all, it is no longer grace. It is then a gift that you've deserved. So grace is a gift you don't deserve and you can't attach anything to, okay? In fact, Paul is so adamant about this that he says this, that if you add something to the grace of God, you nullify it. He says this in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Look at what Paul says here. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved himself and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he, he doesn't say that at one point it was faith. He goes, actually the ongoing life that I live is I live it by faith. And he's like, I'm not going to reject. Nullify means reject. I'm not going to reject God's grace. Also, he says this in Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer a basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So grace is something you cannot earn. You cannot attach a single thing that you do to it. It is a gift freely given. Not to be confused with mercy, which is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us something we completely don't deserve and continuing to give that gift. Again, you might not think you need grace. And so if you would, if you could hold your spot real quick in Luke and flip over to Ephesians chapter two, we're going to look at something here. Grace is amazing. Again, when you understand our spiritual state that we arrive in, and there's no one in this room who arrives, there's no one in the world that arrives at a different spiritual state. When we say and when scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, notice it says this, they fall short of God's standard, God's glory. So what we like to do is, is compare ourselves. There's those that are above us, Mother Teresa. There's those that are below us, Stalin. And we always put ourselves somewhere in the middle. God's standard is that there's no one that lives up to a holy, perfect, righteous, good standard that is completely perfect. Everyone has missed the mark. Therefore, there's two categories, completely holy and perfect or sinner which means that we all arrive at this spot. And here's what scripture says to make it clear. Look at Paul in Ephesians 2. He says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked. I've been to many funerals and, and, and done some of those funerals. I've never once had to worry about someone getting up from a casket and walking off. Most of us don't walk by cemeteries, though they might be creepy. And they're like, man, let's move quickly before all the dead people get up and start walking out of their graves, right? Like for the most part, I don't think we're worried about that. Why? Because dead people do what dead people do. What do they do? Nothing. They're dead. So it's not a 90-10. It's not like I brought 10% uh, and match God's 90 or anything like this. It's that we're all dead. This is a spiritual state of everyone. In fact, he goes on to say this, if you keep reading, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind 
And we're by nature, look here, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So that's who we are, dead children of wrath, okay? Keep reading. It says this. We'll start in four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It, it, it's not about us and what we've done, the fact that we somewhat maybe uh, arose to our spiritual deadness, but because God being rich, this is God's monetary value. He is rich in mercy, okay? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Look here, by grace, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. Jump down to verse eight. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Okay. Grace is a gift that pulls you out of the center of it. And so you can attach something that you do to something and say, well, I've at least done this. And we love that. Do you know why we're skeptical to grace and why it's so hard for me? It is easy for me to preach grace. It is really hard for me to, for my heart to surrender and accept it because it goes against everything that the world says. In, in, in everything in the world, what we see is here's what you do, here's what you put in, here's what you get out of it. And then we start to like that because we go, well, I've done this. That means you have to respond like this. When grace shows up, it says, no, no, no. It's everything that God has done freely given as his gift that he's poured out and we can't attach our own effort to it. This is different from the Roman Catholic view of grace. It just is. Because in the Roman Catholic view of grace, they will tell you that you are saved by grace. The difference is, is this word sola which means alone. Protestants, Christians believe that you are saved by grace alone. Solo gratia. You're saved by grace alone. The big key word there is alone. There's not a, you are saved. And as long as your works accompany the grace, then you're saved. It's you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, it's different than Mormonism because in second Nephi 25, 23, you can look this up later. Second Nephi 25, 23, it says this, you are saved by grace after you do all that you can do. That's not grace. That is you doing all you can do, which no one in this room ever does. If you watch Netflix, you're not doing all you can do. If you go to the movie theaters, you're not doing all you can do. If you're doing all these things, you're not possibly doing all you can do. So how do you know if you're ever going to do enough? That's Catholicism, that's Mormonism, and Christianity says you're saved by grace alone. Alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. So that's gotta be our starting point. We have to understand what we mean by grace, how we're understanding grace, as we flip back over to, to Luke chapter 15, we get a picture of this grace in this narrative and in this parable that Jesus tells. So here's our outline. Grace for the ungrateful. Grace for the rebel. And then grace for the rule follow. Okay? Again, grace for the ungrateful, grace for the rebel, and grace for the rule follow. And I, I would go on to say this. Our world loves a picture of grace. They, they do. We can rattle off movie after movie. Uh, look at Grinch. What is Grinch? It's this guy who like hates Christmas, does, does all these evil plots against the town. And instead of just giving him mercy, which is not giving him the wrath he deserves, they give him grace. They show up, they give him love, they give him gifts, they do all this things. That's grace. You see, and you start to see movie after movie you watch. Les Mis is, is another example of grace. Watch the show called Prison Break. And in that, you can start to see just examples of grace. You watch this guy named Sucre who goes to this poor man's house and this poor man feeds him and then he ends up stealing his car and the police find him and bring him back. It kind of looks like Les Mis. And when they bring him back, they go, is this your car? He goes, yeah, and I'm bummed that he took it because I loaned it to him, but he also forgot the gas money I wanted to give him. And his heart is melted. Like, like we, we hear those stories and go, yes, but here's the question. 
Why do we abandon grace from the pulpit? Why would we ever abandon grace from, from our lives? Or the gospel, the, the gospel is the grace of God fully displayed. The gospel is the power unto, unto salvation for the world. So grace is the thing that has the ability to save us, but it is the very thing that continues to save us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's the gospel that has saved us in which we stand and by which we are being saved. There's not something you move on to besides grace. It transforms your heart by saving you. And then it continues to save you and transform your heart throughout your entire Christian life. What we need as a church family to do is keep taking people back to the grace of God and putting it on display. But it's hard, really hard. Let's look at this. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Jesus's audience would have been baffled just right there because in this culture in, in this culture where, uh, where it is a shame culture, where it is a community culture, but it's also a culture in which the law of primogeniture exists, which means this, that all the rights go to the older son. So a younger sibling doesn't get to come in and say, Hey, give me what's coming to me because the way that it works is after the father dies, he hands over everything to the eldest son. And then the eldest son can then distribute what he wants. But there is no such thing as the youngest son coming and saying, Hey, I want all my goodies. Like the father would have been like, what? And at, at, at the very least, it, this would have gotten you a hard slap on the face, but it would have brought a ton of shame in this culture to talk to your father that way. He's like, Hey, I want it all. But we see over and over again throughout the Bible is that God doesn't operate by the rules of the culture. We see in the old Testament that God gives Jacob everything, right? And God gives J uh, Joseph. So he's giving to the younger showing that he doesn't operate on the grounds of culture. What else is happening here? The way that this works back then is much different than us. You have land, you have property, you have lots of stuff like that. And so what would have to happen is you would have to sell your stuff and sell what you have and then turn that into cash, you'd, so you'd have to liquidate it. So what, what, essentially what's happening here is this, is just give me what's coming to me, and I'm just gonna go pawn it real quick, and I'm just gonna get some quick cash for it. It's not gonna be very big value, but here's what I want. I want my life, I want my gifts, I want this stuff, but I want nothing to do with you, and I don't want to be with your family. I, I, I don't wanna be with my family. That's what he's telling his dad. You know the most hurtful thing in all of this? Is that what he's doing is rejecting the father's love. And what he's also doing and what would have happened in this culture is they, so Jewish people would have said Kaddish, which is this, they would have pronounced him dead because by doing something so egregious like that, you would, be, you, you would become dead to your family. They would have actually had a funeral service for you. What do we have? An ungrateful kid, a very ungrateful kid who's not thankful, who's ungrateful, who just makes demands about all the stuff he wants. What, what, what you have is someone to go back to Ephesians 2. What you have is someone that thinks they deserve something more than what they actually do. If we believe what Ephesians 2 says, if we believe what Romans 3 says, it's this. Even a, 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 a really crummy rainy day in the Pacific Northwest is a gift that none of us have ever deserved. One day, one breath is all a gift from God that no one deserves. And so if you think about it this way, if you're a parent, you get to hear from your kids how ungrateful they are. Our kids are oftentimes just a sliver or a picture of the ungratefulness that we have in our hearts too toward God. Let me read Hebrew 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That any moment that we 
put forth a complaint or grumbling or anything like that. And I'm not saying you can't say you're having hard days and stuff like that. But when we do those things, what we are doing is right then is saying that there's a standard to which I deserve that God is not providing for me. It's ungratefulness. If you look throughout Israel's history, uh, history what they were is very ungrateful people for anything that they had from God. And so we look at this and we're like, oh, this kid sucks. He's ungrateful. Look at what he's doing to his family. He's willing to rip his whole family apart. He's willing to bring shame. Because listen, they're small communities. Everyone in the community would have known. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Oh my goodness, he brought so much shame to his family. This is what he did. And he demanded that, that, he had, that, that his father give him everything. But do we see our lack of gratitude for all the gifts in life that God has given us? Ultimately, the gift of grace. The gift of being called sons and daughters, something that we never deserve, something that we have not earned, but something God has fully given. How do we grow in gratefulness? You first let the grace of God melt your heart. You first let the grace of God melt your heart. Because if I say, here's 10 steps on how to grow in gratefulness, that's ridiculous. Because you will leave here mustering up everything, strapping up your bootstraps real tight, and you're, you're going to grin and bear and do everything. If you want a heart that's going to last and it's going to change, it's going to become more grateful, meditate and reflect on all that God has given you, yet you have deserved none of it. Think about the fact that God doesn't just supply some grace to your life, and it's not just necessary. His grace is sufficient. Think about the fact there's nothing you can do to ever change God's love and his affections and his approval for you. Think about the fact that you, have not done, or that you have not done anything to bring him to that state, but he has done everything through what his son has provided for you. A heart of gratitude comes through that. Then what we do as we meditate and reflect on it is we live an outward life. We start to grow in service toward one another. Serving is a practical way that we can display that we're dying to ourselves to, to live for something greater than just ourselves. Next, grace for the rebel. 13. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. It would have been a Gentile country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe fam famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field uh, to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You know what Jesus is doing? Remember, Jesus is telling the story, and he's telling it to his audience which would have been a lot of Pharisees in, in, in the audience, okay? You know what he's saying? This kid's ir irredeemable. He's gone. He's a goner. Not only has he gone into a Gentile country, which makes you unclean, but now he's eating with pigs. An unclean, unclean food source for Jewish people. I mean, he's, he's gross. He's beyond hope at this point. And, and, and this is where he's at. And what is he, do what is he doing his brother knows later what he does. He seems to have some insight because he tells us later on that he's uh, went out and spent his money on prostitutes. Whatever he's doing, he's taking what was never his to begin with, but his father went ahead and gave him. Think about that. When, when our kids and when we are ungrateful, what is our response to, un, to, to, to people not being gratitude? Is it to do what the father does here and pour more grace out? Oftentimes not. The reason why we're also skeptical to grace and God's grace is because we see how horrible we are giving it. Think about that. When someone wrongs you, do you go, man, I wonder what gift I could get them right now? How I could just melt their hearts with grace? No. When your spouse does something wrong to you, you're like, oh, I'm going to show them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to cook up a good dinner. We're having sex. We're going we're gonna to make this night special. No, you're like, mm -mm. I don't think so. I'm going to make him feel the gravity of this, you know? That's what we do. And then so what we do is then we project that onto God and think God must be cold and calculated like we are. 
This is why Isaiah tells us, your ways are not like God's. We're skeptical to grace because we look at the way we give it. And what we need to do is take God at his word for how he gives it. And it's shown here. Here's a young, ungrateful kid that does this. And then he takes it all and he goes and lives this reckless lifestyle. Do you know what he does? He hires himself out. He's not even willing to come to his grips yet. He's not willing to, to, to try to like say, I need some help. What he's going to do is he's going to do what religion does. He's going to work his way out of it. Martin Luther says this, that our hearts, natural inclinations are religion. So they're in a sense hardwired to always do something religious. It's that I've done this and I've done something bad. What I need to do now is I need to work to get myself out of the mess that I've done. Many people have grown up inside of a Christian household where it was actually more of a picture of this. You've done something wrong. Here's what needs to be done to make yourself right. So this is what he's doing. He's like, I'm going to hire myself out. I'm going to hire myself out to a servant. One scholar says that for the most part, the people, and this is not a knock to anyone, this is coming from a guy who struggles with anxiety, is that it was the mentally insane typically who were tasked with taking care of pigs. And the food that the pigs ate most of the time wasn't even edible for humans. So he's, he's at such a low spot that he's like, I'll take anything. Do you think he's starting to maybe have a better picture of all that he had before? Here's what we're getting. Sin does this. You don't jump from your life headlong into the pig side, okay? There's a progression that takes place. What he's getting and what we're getting through this story is a picture of what sin does. It's always going to lead here. I promise. It's always going to lead here. It runs a course and it runs that course to the max. And so this is where it's leading. It's leading to this lifestyle and it's leading to the spot where this is where you're at. When God sets up his good law and he says, this is how life is best lived. And we say, no, thanks. I'm not going to be a slave to that. I'm going to be free to go live the way I want to. That is slavery because now you're just enslaved to your own desires. And this is what we would call a rebel heart is that look at me. I'm proving how free I am. I'm going to break all of God's laws. No, you're just enslaved to, to, to keeping up with all of your pleasures and all of your own desires. This is what he's doing. We're getting a picture to see, or we, we, we have a picture that see, or we have a picture that shows us what sin leads to. It leads to this. So my question here is, what are we flirting with or playing with that is eventually going to lead to this kind of experience? Let's keep reading, 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you pause. So hired servants were the lowest of the day. So they were day workers and they were paid just a minimum, minimum, minimum wage. Okay. They were actually lower than slaves because slaves had some rights and they had places. Most of them were, were homeless. And he's like, man, as I think about this, how many of my father's hired servants, his day laborers have more than enough bread. What am I doing here? Starving. Verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is his, this is speech he's putting together. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Now Jesus' audience is really livid because this is a man in society and a man of dignity. Men don't run. These kind of men don't. Boys ran, but men do not run. You don't pick up your robes and show your legs and take off running. That was disgraceful back then. This is a father who's actually, it looks like in his spare time, he's keeping watch for his son to come home. He's longing for his son to come home. He's waiting, he's looking and watching, and he sees him in a distance. And what does he do? He goes against everything culture tells him not to do, and he takes off in a sprint to get to his boy. Why? 
because he knows the kind of wrath that's coming for that boy as he walks back into this community. I mean, you would be expected to be spat upon. You would be cursed. You would be told what a shame you are. And his father's like, I'm going to get to him first. And he's prepared this speech. Like, this is a speech of repentance. It's not like I got caught and now I'm just sorry that I got caught. He's like, against you and you alone, God, as since uh, he's praying David's prayer, against you that I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He's realizing maybe for the first time what he's worthy of. And it's not all that he had. And it's not all the gifts. It's not even the father's love. He's worthy of none of it. His heart is becoming, it's been melted. Oh, and it's going to be more. Look at this. His father comes out, embraces him and kisses him. What has the father done now? It's, it's, it's something. He's made himself completely unclean. He's went and embraced a boy who's gone to a Gentile country who's been living with sheep. And now he's held him and kissed him. And in a sense, what he's done is he's made himself unclean. The compassion that's talked about here is something churning from the gut. This, this love that the father had for him. Look at 21. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. When his speech starts off at the beginning of this, he says, father, give me all of my stuff. Here he's like, I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of anything. Look at this. I love this. Verse 22. But the father said to his servant. So the father doesn't even let him finish his whole speech. Sometimes we put so much trust even in how we repent. And and if we repent right and we say the whole speech right and stuff like this, it's like God cuts him off right here. He's like 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. What's he doing? Men of dignity had robes and they didn't even wear them to other people's weddings. They only wore them to their own children's weddings. So he's like, bring the robe. And they would have known it's the best robe. Are you you sure you want us to bring that robe? Bring that robe. We're going to put it on him. Slaves wore, our slaves went barefoot. Only sons and people somewhat of royalty had shoes. And so he's like, bring him shoes. And he's like, bring him my ring. Because the ring showed authority. It's what you would sign letters with, an imprint. And he's like, He's like, I'm not just bringing him back to the family. I'm bringing him back and giving him everything again. You see, what's actually happening here is that the son should be taking the walk of shame, but actually what's happening is the father's taking the walk of shame so that the son can retake the name. When Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus takes the walk of shame to the cross and he's taking it all, all the way there. And while he's enduring it, he's enduring all the shame that comes with the cross and crucifixion of his time. That's why D.A. Carson calls this the, the, the cross a picture of scandalous grace, what Christ endured. But what he's doing is enduring all that shame so that you can then take a name and become a co-heir, royalty, and a child. The father is making him royalty. Put my robe on him, cover up all, and I'm sorry if this offends you, cover up all of his crap. Cover up his stench, his smell, all that he's embarrassed of. Put it on him. I want everyone to know this is my son and I'm not embarrassed of him. I want everyone to know this is my son and I'm not ashamed of him. You will look at him as royalty. You will treat him as royalty because that's who he is. In fact, put sandals on him. Put my ring on him. I want everyone to know that he's mine. That's what Christ does. He doesn't just come to take away sin and forgive us. That would be mercy. He actually gives us tremendous gifts. He gives us adoption. He gives us the love of the father. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his holiness. He gives us and makes us royalty. That's why Romans says in eight, let me see if I have it. Do eight seventeen. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, other than Christ's divinity, what Christ has belongs to you. Read Ephesians one sometime. Read, read, read Romans eight and you will start to see just how much God gives. Not that he just holds back 
the wrath that we deserve, mercy, but he actually gives blessing upon blessing upon blessing that we don't deserve. Oh, the religious would have been so angry at this point, so angry. Look here, 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Most commentators believe that he must have had a fattened calf for some other celebration that was coming up because you don't just have a fattened calf. It takes time and planning to fatten up a calf to have it and, and, and have the veal at that spot. So it means that he found this to be a greater celebration than anything else possible. That his son returned, that his son's heart was awakened, that his son was home. His son that it went and squandered. Think about this. His son that demanded everything with an ungrateful heart went and squandered it all is coming back. And the father's like, hey, we only have, uh, uh, we have one third less of what we did because I gave you something that didn't even belong to you in the first place. You went and squandered it all. And now what we have left, I'm going to give it all to you again. I, I, we would be like, oh, and it would have been right for the father to have a formal transaction to say like, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're never going to be a part of the family as a son again. We've already celebrated, I shouldn't say celebrated. We've had your funeral. What you can do is work to pay off your debt. And then we can go from there. That would have been totally appropriate in this culture. Let's work to pay off your debt. But the father's like, no, think about the older brother. He's like, wait, this kid comes and he takes everything, a third of it. And he goes and squanders it. Now you're going to give him a third of our family again. You're going to call him a son. You're just going to welcome him in. You're going to welcome him in like that. That's crazy. 25. Before we do it, grace for the ungrateful, grace for the rebel. We see it here. Look at what he's doing. Again, it is easy to spot a rebel. That takes no hard work at all. If, if you're a parent, you can identify a kid that has a rebellious heart, right? What's harder to identify is the kid that also has a dead heart, but he has a pretty image. He knows how to keep the rules. He knows how to follow the rules, but his heart is dead on the inside. We need to see that God's grace is for the ungrateful, that it's for the rebel, but it's also for the self-righteous rule follower. Okay, look here, 25. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. If you translate safe and sound, it actually means that the father has made him whole. He's made him clean. 28. Look at the older brother's response. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Notice the father's the one always moving, moving toward his sons. He moves towards the rebel and he moves towards the rule follower. Look at what he says. This is so offensive. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look. He doesn't say father. He doesn't say anything. He says, look. Where's he going to point him? He's going to point him straight to where every self-righteous rule follower does. All these years, these many years, I have served you. And I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Does he want the father? No. What does he want? The same thing his brother got. I want to go, I want to go party with my friends. I don't even know that I want you there. But it looks good. In fact, this, this, this kid, this son, he might, never hit, he might not ever hit rock bottom from the world standards because the self-righteous older brothers don't let themselves hit rock bottom because that would destroy their image. And so they'll work so hard to keep an image up and guard that image. He's just as dead. In fact, maybe worse because he didn't even care about his brother. Like we see nothing through his uh, previous engagements with his father, like, hey, what happened to, uh, to your son? Like, is there anything I can do? Is there any way I can help? No, the only thing he does is he does the same thing, which scares me that people do in Matthew 7. They're standing before the throne of God and they, and they say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did this and we did this and we did this. They had the audacity to look 
at God and say, here's why I should be let in because of all that I've done for you. That is never the basis that Christianity stands on. It is always what Christ has done for us. That's what he does. You know what's interesting is the Pharisees would have been like, oh, let's set him straight. Let the older brother come in and set him straight. Surely someone's got to redeem this father. He's lost. He's crazy. The younger brothers, they've lost their minds. And they actually get to see, oh, this kid's just as lost. He's dead. Look, all these years, look what I've done for you. You know, when the, when, when the younger brother made a turn, it wasn't about what the father could give him. It was about having the father and his love and that being enough. One way to always tell a rule-following, self-righteous heart is you behave to get something from God. God, I've done A, B, and C, and now the way this works out is since I've done this and I've behaved well, you have to love, accept, and adopt me. God, I've done this, this, and this, and since I've done all this, you need to bless my life. My life should go like this. That's religion. That's you thinking God blesses you based upon the work that you've done. He does not do that. That nullifies grace. He saves you based upon the work that his son has done and upon his choosing to love you. It's a one-way love that moves in one direction at all times. It's not a two-way street, which is really hard for us to accept. It's really hard for the older brother to accept. In fact, grace makes the older brother, it makes the rule follower, the self-righteous, so uncomfortable because they're like, someone's just going to go rogue. Verse 30. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, look at this heart. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. This is your brother who was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. God has grace for the ungrateful, for the rebel, and for the rule follower. And his grace doesn't function as something like a treasure chest where every time we sin, we're putting a dent in it and there's a limit to it. Like Christ came to the cross with like 30,000 bonus points and, and they're divvied up. It is an infinite, infinite chest that Christ has because it's not a chest, it's actually himself. And what he's doing as an infinite creator who's paid an infinite death, who sits on the throne right now, is he's interceding for us, which means this, he's constantly applying the work that he's done and finished to our lives for our every shortcoming and our failure. And it can't run out. Christ's grace cannot run out for you because you cannot remove Christ from the throne. He sits there interceding, pleading on our behalf, applying his work to our lives every moment of every day. It's like a waterfall. All you can do is position yourself underneath the waterfall and let it continue just to pour down on you, but you can't control it. And even greater, the source of that water is coming from Christ, from a spring that never runs dry. And only, only Once we start to surrender to a grace that looks like this, will it actually motivate our hearts? You're like, how does change happen? Change happens from asking the spirit to surrender your heart to a grace that looks like this, to a grace that makes you uncomfortable. Because when you recognize kindness and love in such a way like this that God has for you, your, your act toward that is not rebellion, it's repentance. I'll end with this. One of my favorite movies, as Ronnie has mentioned several times, is the movie called The Last Samurai, okay? We get to see a picture of grace in this because the captain in this played by Tom Cruise actually goes to war against the samurai. And during his battle with the samurai, he actually kills one of the samurai soldiers. But then he is captured because the samurai leader, General Katsumoto, brings him back to his village. The captain, he's a drunkard, he's violent, he's angry, and he's being taken care of. But he's being taken care of by this woman and by this boy. And then he's being taken care of taken care of by the village. One day he asked the general, Katsumoto, he says, who is this woman that is taking care of me? 
And she says this. She goes, that's the wife of the man who killed. Day after day, this woman is helping him through his recovery of being an alcoholic. She's feeding him. She's clothing him. She's taking care of him. And his heart changes. Like it is a shift in the movie. You see him change. Why? Because he can't explain how in the world someone would have a grace and a love like that. Christ's love is so much more infinite that it never stops pouring out. It never stops giving. It never runs it in. It is the gift that keeps on giving. How do we respond to this? A few ways. One is in community. The way that we experience grace is through being known by others. And the way that we are actually doing what's happening in the text is, is clothing one another is in the context of community. You're never going to appreciate the clothing that Christ gives you until you start to be exposed and naked. And then as your community comes in, what we're doing is we're reminding you, hey, don't forget who you are, you're royalty. You're robed, you're clothed. This is who you are. You're living like this, inconsistent to who you are and what you have in Christ. That's what a community looks like. That's why it's important, secondly, for us to live in the word so we know how to clothe one another in the truth of who we are in the gospel. We need to recognize how to speak to the rule follower, but to the rebel. Again, in my story, going back to the beginning, I had a dead heart, but then I shifted quickly into a rule follower's heart. I needed my community to walk me through and teach me week after week what grace is and what the gospel is. Third, serving. Serving is a very practical way that when you understand how much grace God has poured out and then he never stops pouring out, that it's endless, his love for you, a natural response to that is, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I live a life that is generous and reflects generosity? I'll say this and then pray. This is almost our last week for our year in gift. Our year in gift has been something that our family has prayed through and given beyond our general tithes and giving. But the thing that's going to stir up generosity is this, is not if I give a certain amount, God's going to love me more. It's the fact that God will not change his love for you based upon how generous your life is. Because when God looks at you, he sees the perfect generosity of Christ given to you. As you leave today, you get to leave with the joy of good news. You get to leave with the thrill of knowing there's nothing that I do, that I perform, that I add to the grace that God has given me. It's sola grace. It is grace alone. But I would ask you to pray and consider what you can give to help us to continue to preach the message of God's grace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a picture of grace in your word that you've displayed. Thank you for showing us what the father is like and how he responds to his children, how he, how he responds not just to the rebellious, but also to the self-righteous heart to know that your grace is sufficient for all. We love you and pray in Jesus' name.